The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. Good morning. Welcome to church today. My name is Ken. I am our youth pastor. If you're new here, uh, welcome. <laughs> I've got my own fan section in the front row. Lucky. Yeah, um, before I get going this morning, I just wanted to uh, mention two quick things. There was a uh, small group uh, kind of coalition meeting that was going to happen, uh, or, or time that was going to happen at the Denny's house this evening. Uh, that has been moved to the church here at four o'clock. So if you are in the Reddigs, the Tillies, the Ellings, or the Heath small group, just know that's no longer happening at the Denny's house. They're moving that here. Um, Tom called us this morning, and they had to take his father to the hospital. So Tom is there helping to, to deal with that, um, and so moving that get-together here. So just make note of that. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out, and it's kind of, it's still a little over a month away, um, school starting, right? Guys, happy about that? Yeah. Um, but that also means that our Wednesday night fall activities are, we're, we're gearing up for those. Uh, and so uh, we, uh, we've normally traditionally had a uh, kind of uh, youth group game night here at the church on the, the Wednesday night uh, before the first Wednesday night in September when we usually kick everything off. This year, we're actually changing it up. We are welcoming all families who are going to have kids participating in the children's department, teens participating in the youth department, and even adults that uh, might want to come and hear about some uh, options for adults on Wednesday nights. That's going to happen on August 29th. And that's going to happen at 6 p.m. We're going to have pizza for everybody. We're actually going to have uh, some inflatables set up outside and nine square in the air and a bunch of things for kids to do. And then um, we'll break off. We'll go different directions. Youth will go uh, come in here. Children will go to the, the faith factory. Adults will, will uh, head towards one of the Sunday school classrooms down the hallway um, just to get some information about Wednesday night ministries. We're really excited uh, just about what God's doing in our Wednesday night ministries. We, we took a break this summer, um, but that was just to give 
uh, some leaders a break and some, some rest while people traveled and were out of town. Uh, but we're getting ready to, to gear all that back up. So I just want that to get on your radar. You'll hear more information about that as we go on. Um, but uh, I just want you to know about that now. Start thinking about that. Start getting excited about Wednesday nights in Okay. Uh, we are continuing in our series called uh, Portraits and Profiles. If you've been here with us throughout the summer, you know exactly what's going on. We are talking about characters uh, in Scripture so far, just specifically in the Old Testament. Uh, and we found out, as our, as our bumper video said, that um, all of these stories are told to kind of point us to Jesus. Um, a lot of times it's very uh, easy to think that these stories are just disconnected, uh, random stories that are collected together in this book uh, we call the Bible, and, and we, we don't think that it has any bearing on what happens in the New Testament. Or uh, we think, no, oh, yeah, it is all connected, but it really doesn't, it really doesn't, that, that was Old Testament, that was, a, that was a different covenant that God made with the different people, and, and we're now, we're Christians, we're the New Testament's our book. But no, what we actually find out is the Old Testament uh, can give us just as much insight into who God is, into, into God's character, into God's interaction with humanity as, uh, the, as the New Testament can do. And so we've been looking at specific people. We looked at Abraham uh, and his faithfulness as he was called out of, out of Ur by God to just move into this new land. And we, we talked about Jacob who had his name changed uh, and, and his uh, identity changed by God so that God could use him. And then God identifies with him all the way throughout the rest of Scripture that he is the God of Jacob. Uh, then we looked at Joseph. Uh, and we looked at the fact that Joseph, um, man, he, he lived a life that he... All the stuff that happened to the, all the negative things that happened to him, he didn't earn or deserve. Um, but he kept his faithfulness to God throughout the entire, uh, uh, the entirety of his story. And not only was he able to save himself, but he was also able to save his family and the nation of Egypt and those surrounding countries uh, during a great famine. We talked about King Jehoshaphat, who uh, in, in the, uh, the moments before battle, he pulls the Israelites together to pray and to worship and to kind of get set and to get centered on, uh, on who was in control. Uh, and then we talked about Moses. Moses, um, the very beginning of Moses' life, a lot, a lot happened there, and, and there's a lot that we can talk about when it comes to Moses. But we focused on the beginning of Moses' life uh, and the fact that, that God had a plan for Moses, and Moses jumped the gun. It's all about God's will and God's timing, and they didn't line up for Moses in the beginning of his story. Uh, and eventually Moses had to stop running, and he had to sit down. Uh, and, and then we talked about Esther. We talked about the fact that um, Esther, it took great courage uh, and faith to do what Esther did, to go before the king. Um, she was being prayed for and, and sent in there, and she was able to save not only, um, not only her own family, but she was able to save her people by what her, what her faith was able to save her people. And then last week, Pastor Chip shared with us about Joshua. Uh, Joshua uh, inherited very big shoes to fill from Moses. Uh, the, the people, even though they grumbled with Moses, it seemed like every story you read about in the Old Testament, um, they still had a lot of respect and, 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 and reverence of Moses. And so for Joshua to come in, to step in, and to take over... Um, that's, that's a big task. It's a big job. If you've ever taken over, uh, maybe at your job or, or, or in some organization, for somebody who had been there a long time before you, uh, you'll find it's really hard to get everybody to uh, have just as much faith in you as they did in the previous leadership. 
And that's where Joshua found himself. And so as Chip shared with us last week, that story kind of correlates into the story that we're going to talk about today. Uh, the very first um, thing that, that, that God shares with Joshua is that they're going to cross the Jordan. And when they cross the Jordan, um, they're going to encounter a specific city on the other side named Jericho. And that's where our story kind of starts out. And, and uh, I have kind of a, a, a picture. It's not so much a map. It kind of is a map, but it's, it's more of a, a picture of the, the kind of the land and the layout there. Uh, at the very top, you're up there towards the top, you see the Sea of Galilee. And then you see the Jordan River that kind of flows all the way down to the Dead Sea. And between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, uh, there's about 2,000 feet of elevation change. You can't quite tell it in the map. Uh, so the Jordan River is, uh, is flowing. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of current to the Jordan River, and it's flowing down to the Dead Sea. And that's where the people have to cross. And not only uh, do they have to cross the Jordan, they also have to cross it at flood stage. Um, so uh, instead of just being... Um, like 100 feet wide, it was, it was close to, in some points, a half a mile wide. And they've got to cross this if there's a lot of current moving. Uh, and this is the point where God tells, or, or God uses uh, Joshua, or a moment with Joshua to kind of establish that reverence that they had for Moses with Joshua. Because we know a, a very Moses thing happens, right? They, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the priest carrying that, stepped into the water, and the Jordan just parts. And that doesn't just part. Like it says that it, the water heaps up, and then the part going down to the, the Dead Sea just kind of went and left. And so they are, they are walking not just across a small path in the Jordan at flood stage. They're walking across on a really big, wide path on dry ground. They're able to make it all the way across. And then not only when they make it all the way across, what happens? Joshua has to send some people back into the middle to grab rocks to make this monument about what just happened. And God allows all that to happen. And then the moment the priests step out, water closes back up. And the people are now in the promised land. Now, before they even get to this point, Joshua makes the decision. Now, if you remember back to some of, towards the end of Moses' story, Moses sends spies into the promised land. And Moses sends 12 spies in. Well, Joshua was one of those 12 spies, and he must have learned his lesson. Because when Joshua sends spies in, he only sends two. Uh, when you send in 12, you can come back and get 12 different opinions. When you send in two, there's a better chance that the, those two opinions are going to line up. And if you remember, right, the decision that the 12 men made or the people made after the 12 spies went in and came back was that they were not going to go into the promised land. And what did God do? God punished them by wandering in the wilderness. So now, knowing what they're supposed to do and knowing they're crossing the Jordan and knowing they're going into the promised land, Joshua just sends two spies into the land. And he says, specifically, I want you to go to Jericho. And this morning, uh, I'm not going to read this story for you. I'm just going to tell it to you, but it's found in Joshua chapter 2, and then again picks up again in Joshua chapter 6. And if uh, you want to read that later or follow along with me this morning, you guys can do that. Uh, again, I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to kind of tell it to you uh, for time's sake, and um, sometimes it's just more interesting to hear a story told to you than read to you, right? Uh, so the two spies go in. Now, Jericho, I wish I kind of had a picture of Jericho for you today uh, that was a little bit better, but on this map, you kind of see it. It's a two-tiered leveled city. It's built on a hill, and this hill is called a tell. 
Uh, and it, 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 the way you uh, read about how these things form, it, it, it makes sense from the standpoint that civilizations 2,000 years ago, they didn't have the heavy equipment, bulldozers and things to clear out rubble. So after, after a city was in a location and either it was destroyed or attacked or people left it or whatever, um, they didn't have the equipment to come in and move or like take away the rubble or to, to knock down houses or do all this. So they would just build the next city on top of or the next version of the city on top of it. And Jericho had been inhabited and destroyed and inhabited and destroyed a few different times before we get to the point where the Israelites come into uh, the Jordan River Valley. And so uh, when they arrive, the two spies arrive to Jericho, they find a city that's kind of built up on a hill and there's a retaining rock wall kind of around the bottom. And then on top of that rock wall is a six foot uh, thick, 20 foot high red mud brick wall. And that's the, outer, uh, that's the outer wall of Jericho. And then you notice there's a second tier and there's another uh, red mud brick wall about the same type that's halfway up the city. And uh, the Israelites, they were, uh, they were equipped for battle. They had swords and they had different things that they could, spears and things that they could defend themselves with. However, they did not have the, defense, or the, the things that they would need to tackle Jericho. They didn't have the ladders and they didn't have catapults and they didn't have all these things that people in warfare would have used during that time to take a city like Jericho. So the spies are sent in to, to kind of scout this out. And, and, and we're not really told how they went in and looked at everything, but I imagine they had to walk around the wall. They wanted to probably see what the defenses were like. Uh, and what they find when they arrive at Jericho, first off, the people are scared out of their minds of the Israelites. They didn't know it, but the Israelites have been playing mind games with Jericho for the longest time. If you, if you notice, that's really close to the Jordan River. And uh, they believe that the, the people who lived in Jericho, especially because it was up high on a hill, could probably look over to the other side and actually see the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness. And so they just knew, like, at some point in time, they're going to figure out that they can cross the Jordan River. And when they do, we're, we're like right there. And so the, the king, the people are actually terrified. They've, uh, they're, they're, Moses led a few uh, military expeditions of his own on the east side of the Jordan uh, against uh, two Amorite kings named Og and Sion. And uh, the, I told first service this when I was growing up, there was a man in our congregation who every once in a while when the pastor had to be out of town, uh, he would step in and speak for him like on a Sunday night in a Sunday night service. And uh, the only thing I ever remember from, from that guy when he was preaching, he did a whole ser uh, sermon on the fact that Og had an iron bed. And, and so Og, this Amorite king was big and, and had this iron bed. And, but anyway, it, he is one of the kings that the Israelites uh, defeat and defeat rather easily on the eastern side of the Jordan. And so uh, the, they, uh, they are an Amorite uh, colony as well. Jericho is an Amorite colony as well. So they have heard what happened across the Jordan River. And so they are terrified. So these spies come in, they find the city of Jericho is kind of on edge. Um, and so they're walking around and, and we don't really know if they've realized they've, people have picked up on the fact that they're there. But the king of Jericho hears that there are two Israelite men there scouting out the city uh, to come in and to take it over. And so um, because he's already, he's already nervous and he's already scared, he decides 
to send out a, 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 a party, to a, a military group to go out and to take them over, to take them in. Most likely, if they find them, just to kill them actually on the spot. Because um, they kind of feel like they're already in a time of war. And so um, we don't know if the spies know that they've been found out or not, but they have been and they're being searched for. And so they go to the, pl- the, the one place in Jericho where they feel like they could go in, stay the night, leave, and not make any uh, waves, ripples, or commotions. And so they go to Rahab the prostitute's house. Uh, you might say, if you're unfamiliar with this story, why did you just identify her as Rahab the prostitute? Well, everybody in Scripture identifies Rahab as Rahab the prostitute. Uh, even later on, her own descendants, way, 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 way down the line in the New Testament, refer to her as Rahab the prostitute. And we're going to talk more about that as we go along with our story this morning. But the two spies end up at Rahab the prostitute's house. Now, Rahab's house was on the outer wall of the city. And this tells us a lot that we need to know about Rahab. First off, uh, we, we can kind of decipher from the stuff that she had that the scripture actually tells us. She had uh, drying flax on the roof, and then later on she tells the spies that she can make a crimson cord and hang it out her window. Those two things lead uh, historians and, uh, and, and whatnot to believe that she was a linen worker. Um, and so they, uh, they most likely are, are pretty sure that that was her day job. But really, Rahab is known for her night job. And she, uh, she lives on the outer wall. Everybody can see who comes and goes from, from her apartment that's on the wall because her roof is all the way up at the very top of the wall, most likely. And so people, you can, they, people could just maybe not see who, but they could see silhouettes coming and going uh, throughout the night. She lived on the outer wall, also tells us that um, she, uh, she was kind of ostracized. That was not a place of honor to live. That was on the very, you could not be pushed any further away from the rest of society living on that wall than she was. If, if Jericho was indeed attacked, guess who gets it first? The people who live on the wall where Rahab is. The other thing is, um, the people, uh, the, the, the poor, the, the, um, the people who have occupations that are frowned upon and whatnot, they live down in this first section of Jericho by the first wall uh, because uh, if, if there's ever rebellion, if there's ever um, kind of, I don't know, fighting or, or mob-like mentality in the streets, it's going to happen there. They can close off the lower section. They can't even get close to the people that actually matter who live in Jericho. And so she is, she is shoved down as far away out in society as she can. She's single, which um, we know from a lot of other stories uh, in Scripture about that time and that place and that area. Uh, if you're single um, and you're a woman, you're, you're about as, that's about as low of a, of a place in society as you can possibly be because you don't have a man to provide for you um, and uh, you're, not, you're not able to defend yourself. People take advantage of Rahab. Um, she is trapped where she is. And in, in her lifestyle, she can't make enough doing just uh, linen work throughout the day uh, to live. This is, how she, this is how she provides for herself. And so Rahab is stuck in this lifestyle. But that night, everything changes. 
these two men come to her door, and we're not told uh, right away whether or not they introduce themselves as Israelites, or she just knows by looking at them, or if they have some kind of conversation. Rahab knows who they are. Um, now, most likely, uh, when uh, in, in that time frame, when people were traveling, when men were traveling due to, to work or to, to travel to see family or, or whatnot, and they would travel through Jericho if they were taking uh, goods to certain places, which a lot of people did travel through Jericho. When they would go through, it's kind of like whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Uh, they could stay with whoever they wanted. They could do, with, they could do whatever they wanted. Uh, and so a lot of men traveling through the city would have found themselves at a place like Rahab's house. And no doubt, this is where Rahab gets most of her, her information on who the Israelites are. Uh, in, in just a little bit, she's going to tell the spies what she knows, but she's, she's probably, she's heard about the Red Sea encounter. She's heard about leaving Egypt. She's heard about the fact that they've already defeated armies on the eastern side of the Jordan. And they've also, she's probably also heard uh, some of the other things that God's been doing for them, providing water for them when, they've, when they're in the middle of the desert and raining food down from the sky and, and just all the different ways and methods in which God provides for his people. And she's heard about this God. And she's heard about this people. Uh, and uh, already in her own mind, things and wheels are turning. And so these men come into her house. And immediately she can tell something is different because first off, the men that come into her house are looking for a specific thing. And these men don't ask for it. All they want is just to stay the night and then to leave in the morning. Uh, because, because they're so scared, the city is so... Um, nervous about the impending attack from the Israelites. They've closed all the gates, locked them all up, and so uh, they have, they have, they're stuck in the city. They've got to stay there. They stay at Rahab's house, uh, and so uh, Rahab can tell that these are not just your regular men traveling through. These are not just your regular foreigners coming through and leaving. They don't want anything from her other than a place to stay, and so Rahab gives them a place to stay, and just shortly thereafter, men come to the door looking for the spies. Now, it would have been very uh, smart, we'll say, of Rahab to turn the spies over. If she's stuck where she's at, if she is trapped in her own lifestyle, um, what better way to even try to climb out of it on your own than to turn in these men that have come to stay at her house that they're looking for? It would make it easier on her. They might deal gently with her in the future. Um, it would, they, she would be looked upon as a, as a patriot, as a hero of, of, the, of the city of Jerusalem. It would have just, or not Jerusalem, Jericho, and it would have just made sense for her to turn these spies over. But Rahab does something uh, that would not make uh, common sense to most of us. She, she hides the spies. She commits treason towards her own people and her king. And she goes even a step further and lies to, the, to the, the military men standing outside of her house. And she sends them in the wrong direction. She is more afraid of God than she is of her own people. But how can this happen? She, she has no background knowledge of, of God. The only thing she knows are the things that she's heard. The, th the stories that have been passed through, through travelers and people that have heard other things in the city and things are being passed around. This is the only knowledge of God that she has. Yet what she's heard 
has made such an impact on her life that she, she sees the greater, the greater uh, chance of hope in these spies of God's people versus her own. And so after she sends the, the men away, she goes up on the roof where they're hiding and hiding underneath her flax, and she pulls it back, and she, she makes an oath with them. She says, listen, I know you guys are getting ready to come into the city. I know you're getting ready to, to come and take us over. I am asking for your protection. I'm asking you not only for the protection of me, but also the protection of my family, which that was a lot to ask for, especially if you uh, are, are most likely living alone because of your lifestyle choices and your family has just let that happen to you. Um, she didn't have to stand up for her family, yet she did. She chose to include them in on her oath with these men. And then we find out something that, that it, see, so, so far in this oath, it just sounds like she's trying to save her own. She's leveraging her situation uh, for the lives of, of these guys. Uh, but really, the ending part of this whole thing, she says, but I know that the Lord, your God, is the God of the heavens above and of the earth below. This is a faith-based decision, not a, uh, a rescue decision. She is not just looking to save her own skin. She's actually making a faith choice in this moment with these guys. We're not told if Rahab all of a sudden just changes her lifestyle. We're not told um, if she makes, you know, big commitments at that moment. But she does acknowledge that she knows who God is. And in that moment probably shows more faith than most of the, the people in Scripture, including some of the, own, the, the men that followed Jesus. Rahab makes that choice. She makes the decision to, to save her family, but also that God is the God of heaven above and of earth below. All the other things that she knows, that society had so many gods that were had gods over weather and gods over uh, water, bodies of water and, and gods for the harvest and, and gods for, for love and for sex and gods for all these different things. But she knows None of those gods have been able to do what their God does. And so she makes the decision right then to follow that God rather than the other ones. And she fears that God more than the other ones. So they go through this exchange and she helps them to escape. Now her house is on the wall, so it's got a window that actually faces out. And you can't see it in that picture, but they have some, a few other renderings of Jericho where there's actually blocks missing from the outer wall that are windows into the people who live along the wall. And so she has one of those windows, and so she's able to kind of lower them down to the, to the, to the ground. And uh, you kind of get the sense that as the, it's like in the middle of that process, they kind of re-go back over details again. So just to make sure I heard you guys right, um, we're safe, right? In, in, in our house, everybody I get in my house is going to be safe. And they, they say, yes, as long as you don't tell anybody else about us, uh, we will protect everybody that's in your house. They have to be in your house. If they come out of your house, um, you know, that's just tough luck for them. But as long as they're in your house, they'll be protected. And so Rahab lets them down. They go away. And uh, I, I do kind of wonder, you know, there's a few weeks that, that pass before the Israelites come to Jericho. And I do wonder sometimes, like, throughout those two weeks, did her faith in, in, in that God, did it ever waver? Because all of us, there wasn't like an immediate attack. It took the guys three days just to get back to Joshua. And then uh, they... Uh, they, they, came, they came across the river at that point, and they, they uh, go through a whole circumcision ritual, and they have to heal from that, and, and, and all this time kind of passes, and I ever kind of wonder, did Rahab ever question uh, what 
what, uh, what she discussed with those Israelite spies. But the time does pass. And all of a sudden, at the base of the wall in Jericho, one day, the Israelite army is there. They're not making any noise. They're just walking around the place, but they're there. You know, and those mind games that they were playing with, unbeknownst to them, across the Jordan, now they're playing them right there outside of their wall. They're walking around the wall, not making a peep. We know that God came to Joshua, and God told Joshua how to take the city. They didn't have the, the instruments they needed to take the city uh, with a common way of war. So what they were going to do was walk around the city once each day for six days. And then on the seventh day, they were going to walk around seven times. And then they were going to shout. And when they shouted, God was going to destroy the city. And that's exactly what happens. And uh, on the seventh day, when they walked around for the seventh time, which, by the way, Jericho is about a mile walk all the way around. Um, so I imagine on that last day, I walked in the 5K, and I know that was like twice or a little over that. So uh, walking seven miles, and they weren't wearing like Nikes or New Balance. You know, like they, were, they were wearing their like hard leather flip-flop things. So that was probably a, a chore in and of itself. But they were walking around the wall, and then the seventh, the seventh uh, pass-through hits, and they scream and shout. The walls fall down, all except for Rahab's apartment on the wall. Now, the interesting thing, they've, they've excavated Jericho three or four different times, and majorly. And each one of them has found that there is a section of the wall that's still standing. It didn't fall. Uh, and and the, the major source of information that they have for this time period for Jericho is what happens in Scripture. And so they found nothing in, in the side of Jericho to believe that that didn't happen exactly the way that it's lined out in Scripture. Uh, then they also have archaeological evidence for everything that kind of happens after that. So they have evidence that the walls were up and they fell because of an earthquake or a, a, some type of natural disaster. Then they also have evidence that the, that the city was then um, uh, kind of laid to waste. The things were knocked down. The scripture tells us that they burned everything. Uh, God instructed them to destroy everything, to leave, leave everything but the gold and the silver, and to just lay waste to it. Um, this was probably done for a few different reasons. First off, um, keeping Jericho and the inhabitants of Jericho and uh, mixing them with your people group would have been, would have been like putting poison in the water. Um, having their, their faith systems and their moral systems and their different things interlocking with, with God's people, that would not have meshed well. Uh, and as we find out later on in their history, uh, God was, knew exactly what he was talking about with them because they struggled with all the different people groups. They would listen to, to their leaders. They would listen to their religious people, and they would leave God for what these other people were talking about. And that happened multiple times throughout their history. So God knew what he was talking about. That's why he wanted them to take out Jericho. But then Jericho is also, it's the very first city, the very first encounter in the promised land that they have. And uh, we know from, from stories in scripture that the first fruits of everything are offered back to God for different things. And they offer it back to God in the way of a burnt offering. And so Jericho kind of becomes a burnt offering uh, for God for their conquest throughout the promised land. And uh, the ar the, uh, there's archaeological evidence uh, there's one layer of Jericho that is burned to a crisp. And in that layer, uh, we were told when they crossed the Jordan, it was in flood stage because it's harvest time. Uh, and then they were told not to take any of the food or any of the stuff that was worth, 
was worth anything other than the silver and the gold from Jericho, and they were to burn it. Well, they found pots of burned wheat still preserved in Jericho, in this layer. Everything kind of just fits with what, uh, with the story of the, the siege of Jericho from the Israelites. The only thing there's any discrepancy over is some dates, and it's not by pots that were found there, but it's by pots that weren't found there. Uh, and I just found that all fascinating this week is I'm, my brain just works that way. I, history stuff, just I connect with it. And so, um, so anyway, we, we, we have all of this evidence. This, is, this did, in, in fact, happen. And so Going back to Rahab's story, Rahab and her family are brought out of their apartment, and they're brought before um, uh, they're they're brought before uh, Joshua, and they when they when they kind of get before Joshua, um, I imagine at that moment Joshua remembered what it was like to be a spy. Uh, Joshua remembered what it was like to be in a foreign land. Joshua remembered all of these different details about the people that probably helped him and the, the people that he knew God probably placed in his path to help him. So he has this, he has this um, uh, probably a, a special place in his heart for Rahab and what she did and the, the risk that she took on by helping her spies. And so they are allowed to live on the edge of camp. Uh, after the siege of Jericho, after everything's burned and everybody else is killed and destroyed, they're allowed to live, and her family is allowed to live with this camp. So Rahab's actions not only saved herself, but they also saved her family as well. And then um, we're, that's kind of where the, the scripture story of Rahab stops, except for when you jump all the way forward into Matthew, uh, we actually find Rahab's name come up again. And as it turns out, Rahab um, married an Israelite. And it wasn't just any Israelite. He was a, a kind of a, a prince, so to speak, in the house of Judah, and they got together, they got married, and they had a son named Boaz, who was, uh, who married Ruth, and it's not too many generations after uh, Rahab that we find out that, that Rahab um, is part of King David's family line, and is also part of Jesus's family line, and there are a few things that we can really pull out of Rahab's story, um, today as we just kind of consider all these different parts. The first thing is, uh, is faith. Rahab is also mentioned in kind of the hall of faith that's listed in Hebrews chapter 11. And at the beginning of that chapter, the definition for faith is laid out for us. In, in, in verse 1, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Rahab didn't see the Red Sea part. She didn't see God provide manna from heaven for them. She didn't see the military victories that God made happen for the people on the other side of the Jordan. But she just heard about what, about what he had done and about uh, the kind of God that he was. And she immediately had faith that he could save her as well. And like we've talked about, there are a lot of, there are a lot of points in Scripture where people lack the faith that Rahab has. People that were standing with Jesus and watched him do awesome and amazing things and then turn around and doubt Jesus, then the very next story in Scripture. Rahab doesn't see any of that, but immediately she has a strong faith, strong enough faith to commit treason against her own people. Um, of course, like the most famous doubter in Scripture is, is Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. And we've talked about Thomas uh, recently, even in our own Easter series. And uh, when, when Thomas doesn't believe that Jesus came back from the dead and didn't believe that Jesus came in and talked to them, he's got to actually put his hands 
uh, his, his fingers in the holes in Jesus' hands and in his feet to believe that Jesus did, in fact, come back from the dead like he said he was going to do. And I like the very end of that passage, uh, this interaction between, John, uh, between Jesus and Thomas. Jesus tells Thomas this, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that is Rahab. She has faith uh, as strong as anyone, and she didn't see a thing. And that is something that God honors. The second thing I want to talk about is grace. 2 Corinthians uh, 12, verse 9. This is Paul writing, and Paul says this, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Like I said, Rahab is identified as a prostitute over and over and over in Scripture. Any other time past her story, even in her story, but then any other time past that, even James, the brother of Jesus, who is one of her descendants, um, identifies her as uh, um, Rahab the harlot. And this is, this is kind of like her identifying Mark. But I, and it's left there, even though, even though obviously she displays this amount of faith and she, she's this prominent person. In fact, there's, there are many uh, scholars who actually set out to prove that the word usage to describe who Rahab was, was actually meant something else. It didn't mean, because they didn't want that label to be put on somebody so important in Scripture. But what they found out is the, the, the two words— for, or that are used to describe her in Hebrew and then in Greek are never used for anything other than the word prostitute or harlot. There's no other way of getting around it. That's who Rahab was. Now, God's grace was sufficient for that person in that lifestyle, stuck in that situation, to get out of it. Not only just to get out of it, to become somebody so significant that they're in the line of Jesus. And maybe this morning you're here and you say, you know, I've, I've had a lot of mistakes in my past. Or maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I've, I've strayed away from, from God. I, I kind of have this lukewarm relationship with Him. I, I, I come to church, but I don't really do much else. I, I struggle with reading my, my Bible and doing devotions. And now it's just kind of this awkward point where, like, how do I get back in? How do I, how do I become close to God again? Uh, because I've just faked it for so long. God's grace is sufficient for you. There's nothing you have to do. There's no step you have to take. There's nothing, um, nothing that you can do uh, to change your situation. But God's grace is sufficient for you. It was sufficient enough for Rahab, the prostitute who lived on the outer wall, who was stuck in a lifestyle that she couldn't get her own self out of. God provided grace for her. And then the last thing I want to talk about is gospel. If there is not a better display of the gospel in the Old Testament than the story of Rahab. I don't know what is. She is stuck in sin. She's stuck in her own situation. God rescues her because of her faith. He saves her. He adopts her into their family. And she is a part, an active part of the kingdom. That's the gospel message. That's what, that's what Jesus comes preaching. That's that's 
when the angels come down to the shepherds in the field, that's what they're talking about. This good news is exactly this. And maybe you're here this morning and you need to hear some good news. I don't know if you're like me. I get tired of turning on the news right now. Just everything is negative everywhere. It doesn't matter what political party you side with. It doesn't matter um, what age you are. Uh, it doesn't matter where in the world you live. There's bad stuff, bad news everywhere. And we can use some good news this morning. And this is good news. The story of Rahab is good news for you and me. Because like we just said, there's no, there's no situation that you can be a part of where God's grace isn't sufficient enough to save you. There's no situation that you can be in to where even the smallest bit of faith in God can, can save you. There, there, you, are, you are loved this morning by a God who created you a God who didn't want to leave you in your sin and trapped in, in the lifestyle that, that you were in before you found him. And maybe this morning, the story of Rahab just does nothing but serve to, as a reminder of what God has done for you. This week, as, uh, as I was kind of thinking about this story, uh, I asked myself, you know what? Um, Rahab's story is a perfect reflection of the gospel, is my own story a perfect reflection of that same gospel? And I hope it is. And I hope your story is as well, that we are living examples of a God who saves us from our own self, from our own sin, from our own selfishness. Rahab is more than just Rahab the prostitute. She's Rahab the faithful. She's Rahab, the gospel. That's Rahab. And that's what we can be today as well. Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for just a moment this morning to focus on you, to focus on how good you are, uh, to focus on the fact that um, you're a God of grace. And your God, it just, it just takes it just takes faith this morning. Faith that you are who you say you are. Faith that, that, um, that you love us. That you have the power and the authority over our lives to, to help us change. To take us out of situations. Dear God, I pray for the person that's here this morning that needs to hear that. They're in a situation that they can't, they can't see a way out. They can't, they can't uh, figure out how to do things on their own. They need to lean on you. And dear God, I just pray that they'd be able to do that today. Pray that you'd be with them. Dear God, I, I thank you for the story of Rahab and just the awesome reminder it is of who you are, of what your character is. You, you care about the prostitute who lives on the wall, who's, who's ostracized by her family and her community. You are God who comes into that situation and changes it. Dear God, this week, if we need reminded of that, help us to, help us to remember the story of Rahab. Dear God, I pray that you go with us from this place Thank you for um, just the opportunity to be here and to worship you this morning. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. You are dismissed.